0: Well, I'm continuing with the series on forgiveness, which I do once a month when we have the Lord's table. In message one, I spoke on divine forgiveness. God is a forgiving God. Praise God for that. Amen. And then the second message was uh, with the topic of therapeutic forgiveness. asked the question, is it biblical? And my conclusion is that it is not biblical to forgive the unrepentant sinner. Because God doesn't do that, but it does make some people feel better. That's why they say it's therapeutic. Uh, Lewis Smedes was an author who popularized this. He says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. I gave you that quote before. Some go further than that. Christian Larson says, it is just as necessary to forgive others as it is ourselves as it is to forgive others. And the principal reason why forgiveness seems so difficult is because we have neglected to forgive ourselves. So he says it should start with forgiving yourself. And others say you should forgive God. And some say life becomes easier when you learn to accept an apology you never got. You have to think about that, right? Now, because I, I believe that it's unbiblical to forgive somebody who isn't unrepentant, I'm not advocating that you walk around feeling miserable and bitter and angry because somebody has offended you or done some grave sin against you and and won't repent of it. Bitterness, anger, resentment can overtake any one of us if we do not commit to the Lord the things that have happened to us, trusting in his justice. But that is true with many bad things that happen to us, right? Right? Not just when people, people offend us. Life is tough. And it'd be very easy to get bitter and angry against God. I know lots of people who have done that. We just need to trust God, as the Bible says over and over, for all things. And understand that there are things in life that will never be resolved this side of heaven. Message three and four on forgiveness, I really spoke about the prodigal son which I call the parable of forgiveness, and it's just a, really a wonderful parable, as many of Christ's parables were. Now, in this fifth message, I want to focus on humility, the key to forgiveness, humility. What I have seen in over three decades of talking with people, and probably the, some of the biggest part of a pastor's responsibility, is dealing with conflicts that people are having in their life. But what I've seen with people who had conflicts in their, in their life, in their home, maybe it's with somebody else outside the home, is the undeniable reality that pride is the main source of conflict in relationships. Pride gets in and it, it does its destructive work. So turn for a moment to the book of James, where we looked at in scripture. James chapter 4. I'm going to read the words <clears throat> again, which we've already looked at. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they come from your desires for pleasure That war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder, you covet, you cannot obtain. You fight, you war. Yet you don't have because, because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly, really. That you may spend it on on your your pleasures. So your prayer is very self-centered. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wants to be friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in you yearns jealousy, but he gives more grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The Bible has a great deal to say about the sin of pride. It's really the root sin, I believe, of sins. It's what made the devil the devil, the sin of pride. But Proverbs 13.10 says, only by pride. And sometimes when you see that, it's not just only by pride, but what it's really saying is chiefly by pride cometh contention. So pride brings contention. But with the well-advised is wisdom. Those who are instructed in God's word will walk wisely. The, the NIV translates this, where there is strife, there is pride. You, you could be certain of that. But wisdom is found in those who take advice, who are willing to listen, And take it to heart. So James 4, as we read, began with speaking of wars, contentions, and fights among people who knew each other, presumably love each other. And he says the source of these conflicts is listed as desires or lust for things that gratify the flesh. And a lot of that, of course, stems from envy. What is envy? Envy is a sense of entitlement. You feel you're entitled to what somebody else has. And that's a symptom of pride. And that's why we read James 4.6, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that's a quotation from Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then James 4.10 says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he Will lift you up, how many times have you been in a dispute with somebody, or maybe not a dispute, but there just was some bad feelings between you people, and you wanted to maybe tempted to get revenge and but you trusted the Lord, you committed it to the Lord, and in due time god God really lifted you up he He really exalted you, he gave you peace, and so forth that's why james three thirteen says this. Who is a wise man? And that's what we want to be, right? We, we want to be not wise with the worldly wisdom, but wise with God's wisdom. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation, that's his manner of life, his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and strife in your hearts, glory not and do not lie against the truth. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. For where envy and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work, or every kind of evil work. And every time we celebrate the Lord's table, as we're going to do this morning, we hear about the love of Christ to reconcile sinners to God through his sacrifice on the cross. Sinners are at war with God and his word. And every time you meet, engage with people who are not believers, they are at war with God and with the word of God. And just the other day I saw a quote, and I think it's really true. It said this, People don't reject the Bible because it contradicts itself. People reject the Bible because it contradicts them. And that is so true. When sinners reject the mercy of God in Christ, they are refusing to acknowledge their debt of sin. And what a great debt of sin we owe. Right? We've sinned over and over again in many different ways. And that debt needs to be satisfied by a sufficient payment. And the only sufficient payment for the sin debt of any, every sinner who is at war with God is the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ is that which brings peace. Peace between men and God by that perfect sacrifice. But people will not humble themselves. And therein is the problem. They will not admit their sin. They will not ask God for forgiveness. You look at our country, right? I mean, we are in dire condition. We really are. Many people are saying the same things. They have never seen it like this before. Why is America in such a dire condition? Well, we've rejected God. That's, that's the short answer. And, and we're worse off than Sodom in, in some regards. Years ago, there was a revivalist named Leonard Ravenhill. And he wrote a book called Sodom Had No Bible. That's an interesting thought, right? Sodom had no bible. He said Sodom which had no bible, no preachers, no tracts, no prayer meetings, no churches perished. How then will America and England be spared from the wrath of the Almighty? Think you? We have millions of bibles, scores of thousands of churches, endless preachers and the word and the word of God. Sodom had no Bible, and they perished. So I want you to think, especially in preparation for the Lord's table, consider the humility of Christ as our example. The humility of Christ which which made salvation possible. Philippians chapter 2, this portion of scripture that you're very familiar with, you can look at it with me. Philippians 2 verse 3. It begins with these words, let nothing be done through strife. We've heard that word a number of times already. Strife, contentions. Let nothing be done through strife, strife, or what? Pride, vain glory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not at Every man on his own things, which was what was happening in James chapter 4, which we read. But every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Made me think of that song. May the mind of Christ, my Savior, live in me from day to day. By his love and power, controlling all I do and say. Boy, we would avoid a lot of problems, wouldn't we? If, if we just really let this scripture come to fruition in our life and let the mind of Christ be in us, following his example, who being in the form of God did not think it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, means he really he, he emptied himself, he divested himself, not of his deity of his glory but it was it was through the way by way of taking upon himself the form of a man he made himself of no reputation took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man it says what he humbled himself there is our example there is our our ultimate example And he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So Christ's humiliation led to his death on the cross. Our humiliation, if we practice humility allowing the mind of Christ to be in us, it leads to death as well. It leads to death of self-ambition, self-satisfaction, self-promotion. All of those things. And you think about it. The humiliation of Christ began with what? With his what? With his incarnation. With his birth. Taking upon himself the form of a of a servant. But it ended with his what? His crucifixion on the cross. And that example of Christ sets the tone for conflict in our relationships with others. And practicing humility, and I'll just mention this a little bit at the end, it really begins with an honest appraisal of your own attitude and action that 's where it really begins and boy that 's hard but but we really do. The flesh is just gets out of control so easily and and we have got to arrest that before it starts taking control of us and 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 we start saying things that we wish we never would have said. We, we damage and hurt the people that we love because once the flesh going, gets going, it's hard to stop it. So take that to heart. Now, when you compare yourself to someone else, what happens? You know, you begin to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. But when you see yourself in the light of God's holiness, then you realize very quickly that you have absolutely no grounds for boasting or self-exaltation. It puts an end to that. Isaiah 40 is a wonderful passage of Scripture. I would encourage you to read the whole thing, but beginning in verse 12, it says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Think about the waters that are upon the earth. God, God knows the depth of those waters the weight of those waters, the volume of those waters, everything about it. And he's meted out heaven with a span, and he comprehends the dust of the earth in a measure. And he weighs the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom did he take counsel? Who instructed him? Sounds Sounds very much like what God was saying to Job, right? And taught him in the path of judgment. And taught him knowledge. And showed him the way of understanding. No one. No one. So when we begin to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, we need to stop and think about the God who we're going to have to give an account to. It says, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. That's all the nations of the world. He takes up the islands as a very little thing. Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need men's offerings. Then Isaiah 40, in verse 17, says this. All nations, that is, collectively, all the nations of the world before him are as nothing. You think God is fretting about politics? Not at all. And they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity, which means emptiness. So that's all the nations of the world collectively, but every man making up, the, of making up those nations is, is even less significant than the sum total. Job 25.4, how can men be justified with God, right? What's the answer? Through faith in Jesus Christ, right? Or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? Because we're born into this world sinners. Behold, even to the moon and it shineth not, yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less man that is a worm and the son of man who is a worm. We're all a bunch of worms. Now, worm theology is not popular. In this day of selfies, I, I lost track of how many billions of selfies people take. And, and some people take six, seven, eight selfies just to get the one that they want. Maybe that's you, right? It's got to it's be just that right look. So worm theology is not popular. The problem is we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. That's the problem. And that leads to conflicts and a lack of forgiveness. And a lack of humility led to a dispute or a conflict among the disciples. And you know, I don't understand it. But then again, I don't understand myself. How could they have walked with Jesus and saw his example and heard all of his teachings and still ended up saying some of the things that they did? Mark 9.33, it says he came to Capernaum. That was his hometown. And being in the house, he asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? No one wanted to speak up, right? Nobody. <laughs> it says they held their peace. For by the way or along the way they had disputed among themselves who would be greatest. Now now put this in context. Jesus was just talking about his death. They're talking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So he sat down, sat down, and he called the twelve and he said to them, If any man desires to be first, the same shall be last of all and the servant of all. There's your humility. And he took a child, and actually the Greek word is the word there for a toddler. So this is a very young child. And he set him in the midst of them. Right up front. Here's your object lesson. And that is the example or the context for the example of childlike humility that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 18. It says in Matthew 18, verse 1, at the same time, the disciples came unto Jesus saying, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, they were arguing about this. And then they posed this question. And Jesus called a little child unto them and set him in the midst of them. So this is the same context. We don't know how you know, that question came about after Jesus questioned them, what were you talking about? At first, they held their peace. And then apparently someone is, well... You know, we were wondering who was going to be, you know, greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He said, verily, verily, I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, you want your answer to your question? He's the one who will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. God resists the proud, but he exalts the humble so jesus was calling for a complete turnaround conversion that's the meaning of the word there in their thinking in their thinking they should not be thinking about who will get the biggest share in the kingdom of heaven or who would sit on the right hand and the left hand of jesus which they did ask for remember mothers of james and john and Jesus said that would be given to them for whom it is prepared. God exalts those he desires to exalt. And J. Dungan said the kingdom of God is not the rule of selfish ambition. What happened? The disciples' self-ambition took their minds off Christ. And what happened? It, re- it spoiled their relationships with one another. As soon as our mind is off Christ, or if the mind of Christ is not in us, then we have the potential for conflict. And Jesus said they needed to humble themselves. And they needed to be like little children who have what? No regard for social status. I think that's a major point here. Now, parents, you know that children are not naturally humble, right? That doesn't come natural to any one of us, not even a child. But children are completely dependent on their parents when they are little, if this, this was indeed a toddler. So they served as a, an object lesson of, of dependence. And children of the kingdom of heaven are likewise completely dependent upon God's grace from the beginning of their salvation to the completion of their sanctification and their ultimate glorification. It's not about us. It's about what God is doing in us for his glory. And that, the lesson there requires humility. We have to humble ourselves. If the disciples had humility, there would have been no contention among them, no dispute And if people humble themselves before God, he will exalt them in due time. If sinners humble themselves before God, they will be saved. Anyone can be saved. The practice of humility can prevent disputes from occurring in the first place. Jesus frequently taught that that pride or selfish desire, ambition, Selfish ambitions are not the character of people who make up the kingdom of heaven. You are never more kingdom centered than when you take the posture of humility. You are never more like a child of the, uh, of the kingdom that is to come than when you take up the posture of humility. And, and rather than exerting your rights, you're willing to lay them down. Rather than seizing something for yourself, you're willing to give it to others. Rather than serving yourself, you're willing to serve others. That's the mind of Christ. Matthew 5.3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.5, 5, Blessed are the what? The meek. That's the humble. For they will inherit the earth. God will exalt them. But what happens with pride? The exact opposite. The sin of pride pride brings a man into conflict with God. Now the sin of pride will bring you into conflict with a lot of people. Maybe people in your very own home. Your closest circle. But it also brings you into conflict with God, and that's even a bigger problem. 1 Peter 5.5, likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject to one another or submissive to one another. And what does it say? Be clothed with what? Humility. 1 Peter 5.5, be clothed with humility. Why? Because God resists, and that's a very strong word. It means God stands against, God opposes the proud. And you you never want God to be in opposition to you. You're not going to win that battle. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. The humble. I also want to remind you this morning, it's easy to see pride in other people, right? It's hard to see pride in this guy. Because we think, we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but we don't even recognize we're thinking that way. So you have to be aware of the power of pride to deceive you. The book of Obadiah, O Bad Edom, right? It's a judgment on Edom. The v- chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise you, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made you small among the heathen. You are greatly despised. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, Edom had strongholds up in the rocks. They felt that they were invincible. Whose habitation is high. Who says in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? I'm secure. I, I, I'm in my own little fortress. I don't have to worry about anything. God's going to bring you down to the ground. That's what, that's what the message was. You're headed for judgment. But the interesting thought there is, the pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. And because it is deceptive, pride will keep a person from seeing their own sins and their own faults. They may actually be in need of forgiveness from someone else and fail to see that. And what's the result? You You have a damaged relationship, very... Right from the very beginning, you all know the teaching very well. Matthew seven: Do not judge, that you be not judged. Now, people misuse that verse. Oh, don't go around judging anybody. No, the Bible says, "You who are spiritual, discerneth or judgeth all things." So there is a context to it, right? Judge not, that you be not judged. Don't judge others if, if you're doing this if you're the one who's who's in, in the wrong, right? Or don't judge others for sins that you yourself are committing. For with what judgment you judge, you're going to be judged. With what measure you mete out, it's going to be measured to you again. And why behold the mote that is in your brother's eyes, but you're not considering the beam that is in your own eye? Or how will you say to your brother, let me pull out the, the mote, the speck of your eye, but behold, there's a beam in your own eye. You hypocrite, first cast out the beam of your own eye, self-evaluation, and then you will be able to see clearly to cast out the moat from your brother's eye, the speck that's in your brother's eye. So this tells me a number of things, and I could list a lot of things, but I'll keep it simple for the sake of time. Number one, learn to objectively evaluate yourself when you're mired in controversy. When, any, when anything ever happens, when there's a dispute, whether it's at work, whether it's with your employees, whether it's with your wife, whether it's with, with your children, stop. Think, think first, you know, am I contributing to any of this? Is there something I'm not seeing here? Second, be willing to consider that you could be in the wrong, believe it or not. You just might be wrong. Practice Humility. Let the mind of Christ be in you as well. Pray for God's wisdom in every dispute. I think sometimes we, we try to solve things too quickly. You know? I, I know I do that. Sometimes I don't stop to really pray about it. I'm already thinking about you know, how, what, what can I say or do to resolve things. But pray for God's wisdom in every dispute and be willing to accept Godly counsel. The Bible says that in the multitude of counselors, there is what? There is safety, right? You know, you, know you, you, you can do some really stupid things without taking counsel or even seeking counsel. In the multitude of counselors, and that's godly men and godly women, there is safety for you. There is wisdom in that. And number, number four, forgiveness centers on the resolution of conflicts in, in a way that glorifies God. And, and that's what we want to do. We want to glorify God. Even in the practice of biblical church discipline, the, the goal, for instance, of church discipline is not reconciliation. The goal in church discipline is the glory of God. That's the primary thing. And God is glorified when people are reconciled. So I'm not saying that that's not important. But we should always be seeking to act honorably and glorify God in every situation. Remembering that sometimes resolution isn't possible, right? As I said before, some things will never get settled this side of heaven. But God can still be glorified by how we attempt to gain our brother. They may not do the right thing, but we can do the right thing. And the right thing is always the biblical thing, what the Bible leads us to do by its instruction. So we really need to know the word of God, and we really need to know how to apply it in our life and in every situation. The quote I put in the bulletin i'm going to close with by ff bruce the gospel is a message of forgiveness it could not be otherwise because it is the gospel of god and god is a forgiving god that's why i began to these messages on forgiveness with divine forgiveness there is forgiveness with a right the scripture says concerning god and man it is to be expected then that those who receive the forgiveness which God holds out in the gospel, those who call them their father will display something of his character and show a forgiving attitude toward others. We must be willing to forgive others when they seek forgiveness and they repent of their sins. And sometimes that's very hard. We'll be dealing with those hard texts in you know, the, the weeks to come that we deal with this. But we have to have that attitude of heart that we are always ready, ready to forgive others when they seek genuine forgiveness.